With the rest of you, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. It's on page 1159. Our church is offering grief therapy for those of you who are struggling with the loss from thir- a Red Sox support group uh, starting here. Yeah. My, we were at Chili's last night, and my, my five-year-old son saw this other kid wearing a Yankees hat. He said, Dad, that guy has a Yankees hat. That means he believes in Satan, right? (laughs) (laughs) Pastors' kids are just, whatever. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) You're a native, son, yep. All right. Well, this was my answer. (laughs) Well, that's obvious now, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) yikes all right ephesians 5 let's look at verse 22 we'll start actually start reading at verse 21 which is where this passage begins submit to one another out of reverence for christ wives submit to your husbands as to the lord for the husband is the head of the wife as christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word, and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However... Each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we we praise you because you alone are our Savior, that you alone have what we need. We confess, God, that we are an earthly-minded people, that we are constantly staggering around, looking around in the dirt, for purpose and meaning and happiness. We're looking at things. We're looking at people. We're looking to um, vacations and cars and houses. Lord, we look to all these things to find that happiness in life, that meaning, and it always comes up short. We always end up dissatisfied. Lord, there's nothing in this life that can fulfill that God-shaped void that each of us has in our hearts. So, Lord, we come to you again confessing that we are an idolatrous people, and that we desire to worship the true and living God. We come to you now to your word because we're hungry for truth in a world filled with spin and with marketing. Lord, we want truth. We want Christ. So, Lord, give us the good things that you have in store for us. We're ready to trade up and trade in and to receive the things that Christ has. Lord, as we open your word now, I pray that you might speak clearly through your word. We believe as a body that this is the word of God that this is not just some ancient artifact, but that you speak through your word, that you spoke, and that you continue to speak through your word. And so, Lord, we come with faith, believing, and expecting that you're going to speak to our hearts this morning as we stick to your word. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, I was uh, on an airplane about three, four weeks ago. I was going out to my college reunion with my wife, and in front of us there was a, two guys sitting on the airplane having a conversation. I don't think they knew each other. They're just striking up conversation. And uh, it was kind of loud, and so I couldn't help but hear what they were saying. And it was sort of, you know, they would talk to each other like that, so it came through the crack in the seats. And So anyway, I was eavesdropping. And um, as I was eavesdropping on this conversation, I, I couldn't help it because it was a juicy conversation. What they were talking about was the whole issue of domestic partnerships. It was interesting, especially as it relates to same-sex marriages. And I was kind of listening in on this, and the guy who was talking the loudest and really dominating the conversation, he was making the argument that, that domestic partnerships is the way our culture needs to go. He, he was saying, look, just have domestic partnerships. Whether it's, you know, two, it's a man to woman, two men, two women, you know, don't worry about that. Just have domestic partnerships. Everybody's covered. If you want to live together, whoever you are, you can have the same health care benefits and the same tax status and the same um, you know, inheritance laws, all of the legal things that pertain to two people living together, just let them do that, all right? And then if someone wants to get married, that's a private thing. You can privately go to your synagogue, your church, or whatever, and you can call it marriage and do whatever you want, and that way everyone can have their private views. But then in, in the public arena, it's equity for all. Everybody, whoever you are, can have a, one of these domestic partnerships. And that's the argument he was making. I think it's an interesting argument. I think it's one that we have to pay attention to because it's one that is gaining ground, at least in public discourse. I don't know if it's gaining ground among people, but it's certainly being pushed. Um, it, Vermont, obviously, enacted law several years ago uh, allowing these domestic partnerships and the blessing of these unions, regardless of gender. Uh, I think there's, from what I understand, there's stuff rumbling in the Massachusetts legislature. I mean, my own, I'm not a prophet, okay, but I have a prediction to make that, that, that this is just going to come up more and more. And like I said, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I work for a nonprofit organization. But um, I, I believe that at some point, this is going to come even, I wouldn't be surprised if it comes Supreme Court. And at some point, the nation at the national level is going to wrestle with the issue of what is marriage and how does it relate to the issue of civil rights. So it, it's there. It's something we have to deal with and think about. But underneath all of this swirling debate, domestic partnerships not, whatever, there, there's a fundamental issue, a fundamental question that we have to keep our eyes on. Because it's easy to get lost in all of the rhetoric and all of the, the uh, political demagoguing that inevitably goes on. But there's a fundamental question that we as Christians and everybody needs to focus on. And the question is this, what is marriage? What is it? That's the bottom line issue. What is marriage? Is it a man and a woman? Is it two men? Is it two women? Is it three women and a man? Is it three men and a woman? Is it a man and his dog? I mean, and I'm not being facetious. <laughs> is there are some groups that would even, some weird groups would even push for that. I mean, what is marriage? What is it? And more importantly, where does it come from? Is marriage something that spans cultures, or is it a human construct? Is it something that human beings have created to promote the survival of the species, and if human beings want to, they can decreate it and then recreate it in some other form? What is marriage? That's a fundamental issue. And so this morning I want to take a step back and, and look at the broader issue of marriage in Ephesians. The last two Sundays, you know, we've looked more at the I'd say practical application, 
We looked at instructions to wives, and we had real specific things to talk about, pragmatic day-to-day -day issues. We looked at uh, the instructions to husbands last week, and that was pragmatic. But this Sunday, I'd like to take a step back as we look at verse 32 and, and take the broader view of what is marriage. Now, I realize there may be some of you here who are unmarried. You're like, a third Sunday on marriage? Like, you know, boy, did I st three strikes and I'm out. This was the wrong three weeks to be coming to church. You know, I, I hope you don't feel that way, because really I believe that what we're talking about here affects everybody. Because as goes marriage, so goes a culture. As goes th this fundamental institution, so goes the culture. And even if you're not married, and for the rest of your life you never get married, what happens to marriage is going to affect you because it affects the culture. It, it just, it's all tied together. We're, we're, to, we're together as a society. We're a system. We're not just individuals isolated doing our own things, but everything affects everything. The morality of a culture is tied to marriage. Is tied to, it's, it's, it's all tied together. So this affects all of us, this larger issue. Christians need to think biblically about marriage. We need to think biblically about singleness. We need to think biblically about all of life, regardless of what our private... Uh, status is, so to speak. So with that in mind, what, what is marriage? I want to look at Ephesians 5 because it gets to the heart of the issue. Look at verse 32. This is the verse I want to focus on this morning. Verse 32. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's an interesting little verse, and I think it's interesting because of where it comes in the flow of the argument thus far. If you look, uh, just to retrace our steps, look back at verse 22 to 24. We studied that two weeks ago. That's the, Paul's instructions to wives, all right? And then verses 25 to about 31, 32, he shifts his focus to husbands, and he starts talking to husbands about what they need to do. He has a lot more verses, <clears throat> apparently, because men need more instruction. I don't know. Interesting theory. Uh, so, so verses 25 to 32, he focuses to men. He tells them what men have to do, or husbands, rather. He says, husbands, love your wives. So in verse 28, just pick it up there. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So, okay, I understand that. That's easy enough. I understand the argument. Paul's saying, wives you are, and husbands, you're kind of one body. And so, husbands, we take care of our bodies right, so take care of your wife because she's like your own body. Simple enough. I, you understand that. I understand that. And then verse 31, he advances the argument. And what he does in verse 31 is he's actually quoting the Old Testament. Do you remember what he's quoting? It's Genesis 2.24, which is the story when Adam and Eve first come together. It's the very first marriage in the Bible. And it's really the paradigmatic marriage for all marriages. And in that text it says, quoting chapter Genesis 2.24, it says in Ephesians 5.31, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Here's the key phrase. The two will become one flesh. So what he's, he said, look, husbands and wives, you're one body, so husbands take care of your wives. And then he quotes Genesis to say, look, you really are one body. This is what it says in Genesis. So are you with him so far? I'm with him. I'm following the argument. It's very simple. It's very clear. Okay, yeah, I'm with you, Paul. Then we hit verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And that's where I kind of go, huh? What do you mean you're talking? 
I thought we were talking about husbands and wives. I thought this whole thing was about husbands and wives. What do you mean you're talking about Christ in the church? When you read it that way, when you follow his logic, and he had this verse, it's, it, it's a strange verse. You say, Paul, you lost me somewhere. Are we talking about husbands and wives, or are we talking about Christ in the church? Which are you talking about, Paul? And I think Paul's answer is, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. In other words, he's tying the two together in a theological way. He's saying that, uh, we'll look at verse 32. It says, this is a profound mystery. That word mystery is important because when the New Testament uses the word mystery, it doesn't mean it in the sense of something that's mysterious or spooky. By the word mystery, what the New Testament writers means is something that God has hidden from us, and then in his timing decides to reveal to us. It's some fact about reality that God has hidden behind his back, so to speak. It's a hidden thing. It's a mystery. And then in his time, God suddenly says, oh, by the way, here's this. You didn't know about this. I'm going to tell you about it now. This is the mystery revealed. So there's something being revealed here that we didn't know before. And I think the mystery is that Christ and the church are really the, the ultimate thing that husband and wife are pointing toward. In other words, when Adam and Eve got married and and they come together and the two become one, marriage was really pointing beyond itself to something greater, to Christ and the church. That marriage is a picture, it's an image, it's a copy of Christ and the church, which is the reality. God's relationship with his people is mirrored, it's reflected in some small way through marriage, which God created. We've seen this throughout the passage. Take out your sermon notes for a minute. If you can find those, this insert in your bulletin. If you look on the front, we've been tracing throughout this whole letter, been hearing this theme of husband and wife as a picture of Christ in the church. Just to give you the quick rundown, if you look at the bullet points there, Verse 23, we saw that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, he told us that wives should submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. Verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's a parallelism. Verse 26 to 27, that whole thing about washing with the water. Just as a bride is washed, adorned, and presented to the groom, so Christ has cleansed the church from sin through his sacrifice on the cross in order to present the church to himself. Verses 28 to 31, the wife is one flesh with the husband, just as the church is the body of Christ. We just read that. Or verses 28 to 30, husbands ought to love and care for their wives as their own bodies, just as Christ loves and cares for the church, which is his body. So running throughout this whole passage are all these parallels. So when we get to verse 32, it's not really something new. He's just tying up all the threads that have been hanging down through the passage. They've been running the whole time. There's this theological uh, understanding of marriage that's been running through, and so all he does at verse 32 is he kind of grabs the threads and just ties a big bow. He says, okay, just so you understand, this is what I've been talking about the whole time, that, that marriage really is a picture of Christ and the church. And so uh, uh, if you look down at the bottom there, there's this quote, I think it's really good. I put in the sermon notes. Kennedy says, It is not as though God looked around his creation 
and found marital union between male and female to be a fit pattern for the, his relationships with humans. It's the other way around. The union of husband and wife is an earthly image or copy of the heavenly union with God, the true husband with his people, the true bride. Paul understood marriage in Genesis 2.24 this way, for he cites the passage and explains, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. I think that's exactly right. So what is marriage? What is marriage? Is it a human construct? Is it something that, for the sake of the survival of the species, a long time ago people created because they found that marriage as an artificial construct helps the human species survive? Is it some Darwinian reason that we have marriage? No. God gave marriage to us as a picture of the kind of intimate, loving, committed, joyful, devoted relationship that God wants to have with us. It's astounding. That's what marriage is. It's a picture of a heavenly reality. So in other words, put it another way, uh, it's, it's not as though Paul was, um, was like, okay, I'm talking about marriage, I'm preaching on marriage, but I've got to have a good illustration. How am I going to illustrate marriage? Because, huh? you know, preachers have to have illustrations. What's a good illustration of marriage? Oh, I know. Christ in the church, that's kind of like marriage. Oh, I'll use that as an illustration. It, that's not how it worked. In fact, it's the other way around. It's that God, the content of the sermon, so to speak, is God's relationship with his people. In order to give us a sermon illustration of it, he quotes, he, God creates marriage. So that when we look at marriage, it's a God-created illustration, a picture of his relationship with his people. So that marriage is a picture of the loving, intimate, joyful, vibrant, uh, zestful, wonderful, committed kind of thing that God wants to have with people. It's an analogy. It's an anthropomorphism pointing back to the reality which is Christ and His church. So in other words, marriage is a sacred and wonderful thing. I mean, it's, it's amazing, this thing that God has given us. And whether you're single or married, it doesn't matter. We can look at marriage, whether we're single or married, we can understand what marriage is supposed to be anyway, and we can see through the picture of marriage what it is that God desires to have with human beings, His church. That is amazing. That's the kind of God who is the God of the Bible. The God who desires to enter into an intimate covenant with human beings, which is astoundingly wonderful. It's the kind of love we were singing about this morning. Oh Lord, I could sing of your love forever. That's that kind of love. This covenant love that the God of the universe desires to have with mere human beings. And it's visualized in marriage. So what does that mean for us, practically speaking? I'm always trying to find the application here. What's the application? What's the practical application of this? Well, there's a lot of things we could say. I think one of the things, though, that comes out of this is that marriage should be honored. That marriage is not some artificial, phony human thing. It, it's a God-given thing, and therefore we should honor it. We should respect it. Whether we're single or married is really not the issue. It's not about our personal status. It's about honoring an institution that God has given to human beings. In fact, if you look at the book of Hebrews, turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. It's on page... 1194, 1194, near the end of the Bible. 
Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13 has a lot of, I don't want to say random, but sort of just, it, it's sort of a hodgepodge of different commands. Sometimes New Testament letters, they end the letter with just lots of little commands, kind of a catch-all for all the things that the, the writer wanted to say. We kind of have this in Hebrews 13. Look at Hebrews 13.4. The writer touches on the topic of marriage. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. But I really want to focus on that first line. Marriage should be honored by all. We should hold honor in marriage in a certain honor and esteem. And everyone should do it. It doesn't matter if you're single or married. Again, I'm trying to, to take this out of the what's my personal stake in this, to say, look, we should all honor marriage. That the fundamental institution of society, the fundamental building block is marriage. It always has been. And it's based upon marriage that God and people build societies. And so we have to honor it because it's more than just a human construct. It's a God-given picture of his relationship with his people. The problem, of course, is we live in a culture today that is dishonoring to marriage, that dishonors marriage, that there are many cultural forces, there are different ideas that, that are watering down marriage, dumbing down marriage, taking away its sacred nature and making it more just pedestrian or even personal and private. Uh, you know, this whole conversation I told you about with the guy in the plane that I was eavesdropping on, uh, this guy was talking about domestic partnerships and same-sex marriages. I mean, a same-sex marriage is an oxymoron because marriage, by definition, is a God-created thing between male and female, and we have to protect it as a sacred thing. Look, even if you're here this morning and, and you don't believe in the Bible, or you're kind of dubious about the Bible, you're kind of dubious about Christianity, maybe you're here this morning, you're a little bit skeptical. Okay, fine, let's put the Bible aside. Doesn't it matter, or does, isn't it significant that every culture that we know of, and that anthropologists know of, has always had marriage between man and woman? And isn't it significant that it's not until the last few nanoseconds of human history that we've suddenly felt that we can kind of tweak this thing and redefine it as we wish? I mean, even if you're not a Christian, isn't that significant? Doesn't that mean something? And then you also have to ask yourself, well, why is it? Why do we find marriage in every culture? Sometimes it's, it's healthy, sometimes it's distorted, but it's always there, and, and it's always the fundamental institution upon which the rest of the society is built. Why is it that way? May I suggest that, that a bad explanation is because humans created it. it. It doesn't follow as well. A better explanation is there's something inherent about marriage. It's a, a sacred thing. And so I think we mess with marriage at our own peril. So when we start redefining marriage as male, male, female, female, three guys and a woman, whatever, man and his cat, you know, whatever, we are really messing with the, one of the, the basic fabric of society. And as goes marriage, so goes a culture. Because it's the basic. Or think about it this way. It's like an atom. An atom, of course, is the fundamental thing that, that uh, molecules are built on. Molecules are collections and constructs of atoms. And I think of marriage as kind of like, in terms of societal institutions, it's like the atom. And if you split the atom, it unleashes a, a tremendous destructive energy throughout the system. And so we have to protect it. We have to honor it. What about domestic partnerships, somebody says? You know, well, look, just make, like the guy said in the plane, just make domestic partnerships, and if someone wants to have marriage, that's a private thing. 
Well, you know, I, I really don't want to get too into the politics this morning. You, you know I don't use the pulpit here as a political platform. Uh, but, but I will just say that I, my concern is that when you start saying, well, look, you can live together and, and you can have all the same rights as married people and it can look just like marriage except we're not going to call it marriage, I mean, what's the difference? It's just semantics at that point. What you've done as a society is created a broader concept of marriage than has ever been embraced, except you just won't put the title marriage on it. You've done, in effect, the same thing. And so I think as a society, we have to really guard the sanctity of marriage as a unique thing, regardless of what your views are on homosexuality and related issues. Marriage has always been a sacred thing between man and woman, and we mess with it at our own peril. Oh, but let's step away from that issue. What are some other examples of, of dishonoring of marriage in our culture today? I mean, okay, maybe that's a hot topic. We don't want to talk about that one. How about another one? What about cohabitation? I mean, that's just as commonplace as commonplace can be. In fact, uh, look at your sermon notes again. I found some interesting stats on cohabitation, doing some surfing the net. Look on page three of the, the sermon notes. Today in America, almost 10 million adults live with an unmarried different sex partner. 41% of American women ages 15 to 44 have cohabited. I didn't, couldn't find the stats on men, but I'm sure that they're about the same. I wasn't trying to pick on women there. It's the stats I found. Uh, look at the third bullet point down. The number of unmarried couples living together increased 72% in the last 10 years. And the number of unmarried couples living together has increased tenfold in the last 40 years. So there's, again, this, this watering down of marriage. There's this living together thing, which is, you know, it's like lease before you buy. Uh, you know, test drive the car before you buy it. Well, I want to make sure this thing works. And, and, and you hear kind of a logic to that. Well, we're going to live together a little bit, and if living together kind of works out, then we'll decide to get married. We don't want to commit to something like marriage without testing it out first. And it sounds like wisdom, except for the fact that it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Again, even if you don't believe the Bible, even if you don't believe Christianity, just look at the sociological and psychological research data, which is devastating when it comes to the effects of cohabitation. It doesn't work, if you want to put it down to that kind of pragmatic, does it work, doesn't it work kind of terminology. Again, look at the bottom of the sermon notes. Uh, I found some interesting factoids from a little publication called 20 Good Reasons Not to Cohabit and it's filled with all the research data. I didn't put the research data in. If you want that, I can get that for you. But some of the conclusions from this research was that, statistically speaking, cohabiting couples are less likely to marry than couples who date and get engaged. Cohabiting couples have higher separation and divorce rates than couples who don't cohabit before marriage. Cohabiting couples who marry have unhappier marriages, according to psychological data. Cohabiting couples do not experience the best sex. Interesting. Look at the bottom one. Cohabiting couples are at a high risk for unwanted pregnancies. Well, of course. I mean, it's, and you can go on and on. There's a lot more. There's 20 reasons the guy gives. But uh, again, the picture is one of failure, not success, when it comes to messing with marriage. Because marriage is not some human construct. It's not something that we invented to help ourselves. It's something that God gave us as a sacred gift to point back to his relationship to the church. So that when we mess with this, we not only mess with children, we not only mess with society, I, we ultimately mess with how we understand God. God has given us this picture of what he wants to have with us. And when we mess with marriage, it's like we're putting a big curtain over the picture. 
So we as a society don't even have that to look at anymore. It's just one more way of cutting ourselves off from the salvation and the life that God would offer to us, which is a tragic thing. And so let marriage be honored. Let marriage be protected. And let it be honored by all. All. Married, single, widowed, remarried, I don't care. All. Let marriage be honored. If you're married, honor your marriage above all else. Make it a a high priority in your life. I was trying to think of an illustration. I had this idea, and I was trying to think of an illustration. The illustration I came up with was castles in the the, uh, ancient Europe. And uh, you know how a castle works. There's a series of fortifications. Typically outside the castle is maybe an earthen embankment that's difficult to climb, and maybe there's a moat with water in it. And then after the moat, you get to the outer wall of the castle. And then after that one, there's an inner keep, typically to a castle. There's another wall. And then inside that inner keep is, is usually some kind of fortified tower. So the idea is if the enemy breaks through the, the uh, embankments, you stop them at the outer wall. And if they breach the outer wall, you stop them at the inner wall. And if they some, by some chance breach the inner wall, you run and hide in the tower. And that's where everyone holds up who's left and, and withstands the attack. And I thought, you know, that's kind of a picture of our lives, that that we have these series of rings in our lives of of strength, uh, er, areas of strength where we have to stand firm to protect ourselves. And we take our most treasured and valuable things and we put them in the inner circle. The inner circle of our lives, that center tower should, of course, be Jesus Christ. It's our relationship with God that is the ultimate strength of our lives. And in fact, He's the whole fortification, but anyway, we don't want to mess with the image. You know what I'm saying. I mean, God, God is the strength. He's the center. And above all else, you must protect, defend, fight for, do whatever you can to protect your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because it's the center. Now, if you are married, the second wall in the castle should be your marriage, if you are married. That's the second thing you have to fight for. Now, I understand it takes two to fight for it, Understood, But as far as you're concerned, fight to protect that, that second circle. That second, uh, that second ring of protection, your marriage, should take more energy and focus than your job, ultimately. It should take more uh, of your concern than your own health, your own leisure, your own sense of comfort and peace. It should even, this may sound strange, your marriage should even take more focus than your children. That sounds strange, but it's true. Some, sometimes people let their children come in between them as, as a married couple. No, no, no. Your children are secondary to your marriage in a sense. Obviously, they take energy and care because they're little, but that's not what I mean. I mean in terms of priorities. When push comes to shove, it's God with a married couple and then children around that. Children need to see parents who are, are fighting for each other first more than for them which is kind of contrary to where our culture thinks. So whatever you can do, couples, those of you who are married, fight to protect this sacred thing that God has given you because ultimately your marriage is not about you. It's about something bigger than you. It's about Christ and the church. I heard about a uh, wedding recently where the pastor was giving his little message and uh, as he talked to the couple, he said something interesting. He looked at the bride and groom and he said, the most important person in this wedding ceremony today is God. That's what he told the couple. I thought that was a really cool way of putting it. The most important person in a wedding is God. 
Because you think the most important person at the wedding is the bride. Because, you know, it's all about the bride. And she's got the dress, and everyone's like, look, you know, looking at her and, and you know, fluffing her and, and working about the bride. And well, whatever she wants, she gets, because, you know, it's the bride's day and all this. So you get this idea and, and th that it's the bride's big day. It's, but ultimately, the bride is second fiddle to God. Every wedding is God's big day. Because it's God's day to say to the world, you see that? That's what I want to have with you. Is anybody listening? And, and usually we're not. God is the center. It's about Christ, not about us. The marriage is just the, the little picture. God with his people is the big picture. And so given that reality, we have to fight for our marriages. Some of you in your marriages are kind of drifting apart. You're like two boats and you're kind of falling asleep. And you wake up and you realize the boats are drifting. What do you do if you're on the open sea and you realize the boats are drifting? You get your paddle out and you paddle like crazy. Fight. Get help. Whatever you have to do. Don't let your marriage just drift apart as far as it depends upon you. And again, I understand it takes two. I understand that. But as far as it depends upon you, fight for it. Do everything that you can before God to defend that. Why? Because it's sacred. Let marriage be honored by all. That includes single adults as well. Let everybody honor marriage. Even if you're single, honor marriage. Do you have some married friends? Pray for them. Do you ever pray for their marriage? Just pray for their marriage. You know, don't walk around with a single chip on your shoulder, like, I'm single. You know, that can happen sometimes. Get rid of the chip. Pray for your married friends. They need it desperately. Because they're in a very difficult thing called marriage. They're stuck with a sinner. And they can't get free from this sinner. They're married to each other. It's a difficult thing, so pray for them. Um, encourage them. If you see something in their relationship that's concerning to you, if you're really their friend, walk up to them and say, you know, I love you, and I see this going on in your marriage. You've got to address that, okay? They may not want to hear that from you. It doesn't matter. You're their friend. You need to tell them because marriage should be honored by all. Or if you see them doing something right, say, good job, I appreciate that. Really care about them. Because, again, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about my marital status or your singleness or whatever. It's about God's glory, which is reflected in marriage. So let marriage be honored by all. But then, of course, the most important way in which we honor marriage, whether we're single, married, remarried, separated, divorced, doesn't matter. The most important way that we honor marriage is by taking hold of that to which marriage points. Because ultimately, if marriage is just the copy, if marriage is just the pointer pointing away, make sure you take hold of the thing that marriage is pointing to. Because what's the point? What's the point if you have a happy, successful marriage your whole life, but at the end of your life, you missed the whole point of marriage, which is Christ. And if you miss Christ, then it's like, well, you did a good job at the, the copy, but you never got the original. You never experienced the joy of a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of us, whoever we are, regardless of your marital status, every one of us can look at marriage. We can see in marriage what it's supposed to be anyway, the love that it's supposed to have. And we can all look beyond it to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see Christ like the bridegroom with His arms open saying, Come, be my bride. Believe in me and be saved. And so come to Christ. Let Him be your Savior. 
I remember one of the most beautiful pictures in a wedding was, I, I was a wedding I was doing. It's not because I was doing it that it was beautiful, but it was, it's actually what the bride and groom decided to do. Uh, some of you know Pam and Darren Prince. They're missionaries of our church. And at their wedding, it, it was really cool because uh, they had all these people they knew from different cultures, and they both did homeless ministry. So they had all these different groups from the city. It was a very interesting wedding. But at the end of it, what they wanted to do was sing a closing song. And, and they sang that song that we just sang this morning, we will dance on the streets that are golden. The glorious bride and the great son of man. You know, this whole picture. And, and, the, and as they sang, Darren was sort of was standing here, and, and he, he just raised his hand, and he was just singing, you know, just worshiping the Lord with his hand raised. And in the back, there was a photographer. And he, and he looked over at our wedding coordinator, and he goes, what's he doing? <laughs> you know? And she looked at him, and she said, he's worshiping. He's worshiping. And he's like, oh, he's worshiping. I, I get it. It's, it's like you could stand there and you could look through Darren and Pam and you could see their wedding, but then it was like, it was, it was like a prism bending the light and pointing it up to where it should be, which is to God. And that guy was out there. And, and so the, the issue is, all of us, in a sense, are where that photographer are. We can all see what marriage is supposed to be. Obviously, no marriage is perfect. But we know what it's supposed to be. And we know what Christ is offering us. And the question is, will we take it or not? Will we receive Christ in our hearts? Or will we just walk out of the service and miss the whole point? Because Christ stands there with His arms wide open to receive a sinful and rebellious humanity. Anyone who will come to Christ will be saved and forgiven. And it's open to anybody, if you'll just believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father, we, we are just in awe at what a gracious and loving God you are. For we, Lord, are a we are an unfaithful people. In every single one of our hearts, there is, there is a spiritual adultery. We want to worship other gods. We want to go our own way. And yet, Lord Jesus, you died on the cross so that we could be washed of our sins and forgiven. And you stand with your arms wide open so that anybody, no matter what mistakes they've made, no matter what failures or sins are in their lives, Lord Jesus, your arms are wide open to receive them and forgive. And so, Lord, I pray that we might taste the reality, that we might not only experience the image, but the, the content, the truth, which is a relationship with you. Lord, I then want to pray for marriages secondarily in this church. I pray for any marriage here that's struggling. God, put a sense of urgency in the hearts of that couple to seek whatever help they can. Lord, I pray that if right now it is a one-way street and there's one of them who's open and one of them who isn't, I pray, Lord, transform the one who isn't. Let there be a mutual yearning after holiness. God, I pray for anyone here who's uh, had failure in marriage and lives with the guilt and the, the hurt of that. God, I pray, would you touch their hearts? Would you just, would you kiss them, Lord? Would you embrace them? Would you tell them that you are a forgiving and gracious God and would you restore them? Lord, I pray for anyone here who's single that you would just strengthen their um, vision of what marriage should be. Lord, let the single people in the church just uphold and bolster those who are married. And Lord, let the married people in their church uphold and bolster those who are single. Let this be a body, God, where we don't divide ourselves into little groups 
based upon our own personality traits or station in life, but help us to transcend that and to be the church of married and single, young and old, black, white, everybody in Christ. So Lord, do a work among us. Lift up Christ in our eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.